This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. This week, the New South Wales vaccination rate has passed 86% for the first dose and the roadmap out of lockdown has become clearer for our two most popular states. Having a clear path and a sense of purpose certainly does remove many worries, but not much of it has appeased a large section of social media, which remained a quagmire of rancour and dispute. Following Lisa Miller leaving Twitter altogether and Lee Sales' stinging takedown of much of what passes as discussion, we ask what's happening in our digital town square? And whilst we're on the subject of social media, we'll also take a look at the implications of the Dylan Voller defamation case and just what it means if many media companies are forced to shut down comments. Joining us today via Zoom is Kishore Napier-Rahman, politics reporter for Crikey, and Michael Roden, who's a senior companies reporter for the Australian Financial Review. Kishore and Michael, welcome to Fourth Estate. Okay, thank you both for being here today. Let's set the scene. We've had long, drawn-out lockdowns, riots in the streets of Melbourne, the French haters. Uh, so far, this, is ha- this hasn't been a fantastic year. A lot of people's frustration is being expressed on social media, which for me at least has been a really disheartening place to be this year. H- have the two of you felt that social media, and, and Twitter in particular in recent times, has become a less hospitable place for journalists in particular. Keisha, we might begin with you. Well, I mean, I question whether Twitter was ever a particularly hospitable place for anyone, but um, definitely I think we're seeing a situation. Has it it worsened? Yeah, look, probably. I mean, you would expect something to worsen when we've all been indoors for 18 months and we've all been slowly going insane what most of the last 18 months. Mm Yeah, I think there's definitely a situation where it's melted people's brains a lot of the time. It is the sort of place that rewards things like snark and tribalism, which, of course, leads to a place that is not particularly uh, pleasant. Um, But at the same time, you know, if you're in the media, you sort of feel like there's this endless pull to keep you on there. So you really expose a lot of the nastiness. I think one of the things we've definitely seen, though, recently, in particular this year, is just sort of a reflection of the broader community anxiety around sort of the way out of this pandemic, around things like reopening, around things like lockdown. And that has led to a very sort of, I guess, quite tribal Twitter experience. Um, And I think that's probably one of the main reasons it's been so toxic at the moment. Mm. Michael, the big question, I guess, is, you know, are we, uh, in terms of what we're seeing on Twitter, is it just that 
people are going stir crazy from being locked up for so long or are we, as many people fear, seeing a coarsening and calcification of political debate that, for example, we saw happening in America some five years ago? Yeah, I I think it's interesting and and it's not just like an immediate thing that's happened in the last one or two years or something like that. You know, I remember like Twitter, uh, you know, a lifetime ago, you know, a decade ago, um, it was it was mostly just gags and sort of a few links. Maybe there was less people on it. It was a bit more of a sort of a, a, a more engaged sort of group of people. Um, but it was just sort of there for for ridiculousness, entertainment. Um, and slowly over, I guess, the, the last decade, it's sort of it, everything has become sort of politicised on that platform. Um, and not only is that really not fun, um, it just means that anything that you utter is used as an attempt to play to your own side. Um, and it, it, it's not just left and right, but it, it's it's any sort of cause that you could imagine. Um, everything's being picked apart. And, you know, it makes sense. You know, everyone talks about the democratisation of, of the national debate. Um, you know, it, it's a good thing that more people are able to put their views out there um, and and see how they go. Um, I, I think just... The problem with it is that, you know, we look at Twitter as if it's, um, you know, sort of like this representative thing um, or, or like it, it might be like sort of innocent like Facebook. But, um, you know, journalists aren't being influenced in the way they behave by what their uncles and aunties are posting on Facebook, but they are being influenced by what the same people are posting on Twitter under different Pseudonym, pseudonymous names. Is that is that influence because they're being criticised? Is that what you're saying? That the criti- that the criticism of them is forcing them to take a, a different stance in their journalism. I, I think you'd be kidding yourself if if people thought that um, you know they didn't think twice before saying something, or they might tweet something and delete it. And you know, many people would say that's probably a good thing to think about what you say. You know, think about how it'll be received and everything like that. Um, but then on the other hand, it's it's not like people are thinking twice about saying uh, something, you know, stupid or racist or blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they are, but like, but they're also thinking twice about saying things that are, you know, entirely defensible within reason, something that you might think that, you know, 95% of the population would probably agree with you. Um, so you're saying that you think that journalists are thinking twice about what they post on Twitter in order to avoid pylons and in, in order to avoid attack? Well, as they should, um, because journalists probably shouldn't be sharing their opinions online um, all the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, as bad as anyone at um, refraining from commenting on things because, you know, it's fun. Um, but I do think that even when you're posting links to stories or sharing information, say from a press conference, you know, you look at what happened to Rachel Baxendale in Victoria during their first lockdown. All she was doing was asking press uh, questions at a press conference and she was just being abused nonstop. Um, and I think that that's a strange way for journalists. It's a strange environment to sort of for journalists to conduct their uh, profession in. We saw something similar this week with Casey Briggs, didn't we, Kishaw, where Mm. he was merely posting the the latest COVID numbers out of Victoria 
and all of a sudden there were there was a pile on. There was an accusation. There were many accusations that he was taking a stance and passing comment, which seemed like an odd thing. Did you notice that and did it bother you? Look, I think there's a couple of things going on here. The first goes back to what I was saying about people having maybe too much time on their hands and focusing in, on politics, I think, in a particularly harmful way. I, I think that there's all this sort of scrutiny on specific journalists and you know people watching every single ABC News update and viewing it through... I mean, people are always going to view things through a hyperpartisan frame, but through a particularly strange and blinkered sort of hyperpartisan frame where I guess almost the political binary gives way to some kind of weird state versus state thing. Um, so you get this situation where anything that is considered negative towards Melbourne, Dan Andrews is seen as some kind of, you know, conservative plot. Um, and, and people's and that sort of warps people's perceptions and they view everything through that lens. Um, I think the other thing to say here is that, I mean, I don't know if it's particularly healthy for members of the public to focus on and to sort of pick their favourite or least favourite journalists and, and sort of accuse them of things like bias and that kind of thing. But I think the reason we're, we're seeing that um, is because people are sort of getting more of a ringside seat into how journalism works than they've ever had before. I mean, we never had this situation where people would watch like five premier press conferences a day um, and sort of... Mercifully, I don't think many of us do anymore. But do you think that that kind of, um, that kind of critique that's coming from the public, from, from that, that body of people that we used to call an audience, um, is pushing journalists to to take a stance? Is it pushing them to be uh, more of one side or another? Look, um, I'll preface this by saying that I think journalists can sometimes be some of the most thin-skinned people in the world. <laughs> a lot of the time there is this worrying trend I see, particularly online, of journalists conflating quite legitimate criticism of stories which are often maybe not very good or badly framed or misleading in, in various ways as abuse and an attack. None of this is to condone the very real abusive comments that you do see on social media all the time. So I will preface this by saying that journalists can be a little bit thin-skinned about how they relate to their audience. And obviously the democratization of discourse, yada, yada, blurs the lines, means that they can suddenly interact with that audience. I think that is sometimes genuinely a good thing, right? And it can lead us to sort of maybe interrogate our own biases and, and whatnot when we're putting a story together when we're doing anything. Um, at the same time, I do think like a kind of relentless stream of sort of just quite frankly weird um, comments that you get does maybe influence you. Like, I mean, some of the most absurd comments I've gotten have just been from writing relatively straight news stories on like Victoria and Dan Andrews last year and getting accused of all kinds of nonsense. And mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. You can't, you know, that stuff's ridiculous and the people who are doing it have probably not read beyond the headline. Um, but it still obviously does affect you and, and does shape the way you kind of think about when you, when the next story and, and how you kind of relate with the audience and that kind of thing. You'd be lying if you said it didn't sort of influence you in some way, but how it does influence you is not always, I think, immediately clear. Does it influence you, Michael? Well, I, I've been cancelled more times than I can count. And, you know, I, I wrote a story yesterday um, just about one of these COVID academics. Um, 
and you know people were sharing it online and saying like oh i don't agree with michael rodden you know i don't like him but you know this is good and it's just like who cares if you don't like me you know it's like <laughs> my bio, like the 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 stuff under my byline has has you know covered every single topic in the world from every different angle you know it's like i i don't i'm not like a a, a crusader for for anything you know i, I write stories i i print information um from where it comes it, it's my my personal views or, or my byline you know is is pretty irrelevant to the story most of the time um I, I i think it one of the issues with the industry at the moment i think is that there are like, you can probably carve them up into two groups one would be much larger than the other but one group is re- very desperate for the um, adulation of their audience and and their colleagues and the other um, part of the industry uh, you know is ambivalent um, and doesn't mind stirring debate and losing friends um, and and I think that the part that that craves adulation is is much bigger um, and that's that's I think that's a that's an issue because being a journalist isn't about making friends. Um, it, it's it's almost about losing them, really, because how so can you, you be are telling you, are, you, are you saying there, Michael, that you think that journalists perhaps flirt too much a little with their with the audience on Twitter, and that they ought to kind of keep it more, um, you know, keep their views to themselves, keep their conversations, you know, limited um, or at least nice, and 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 pull back a little. I think the sad thing is, is that like the more I've seen, uh, and, and people would apply this to me as well, but the, the more I see personal views creep into online sort of discourse and chatter and stuff like that, it, it does affect the way that I read their professional work. Um, you know, and I, I, I think it would be hard for anyone to admit that they don't see that. Um, you know, the newspapers didn't used to have bylines. Um, you know, the, the Economist still doesn't. You don't know, you know, the, the bad thing about that in The Economist is it's usually written by, you know, very young people with, you know, a, a little experience, but it has this sort of, you know, um, esteem because it's anonymous um, and, you know, it, it, it has like sort of this intellectual weight because you can't penetrate into it. And it's just like, well, more often you see on just straight news stories, you know, a dinkus, um, you know, next to a byline, it's very personalised you know these journalists have personalities online and it's just i don't i don't think it's very good for for the dissemination of facts no i i think i tend to agree with you and so what's the solution then is it um is a journalist just getting off twitter well i'm much more productive when i'm not on twitter um but then twitter is usually a recourse when i i don't have anything bubbling away in the back of my head at the moment and the, the bad thing is, it, is it's it's very useful for lazily following the news. You know, it's like I, I can read the, you know, four or five newspapers in the morning and be very across everything. But during the day, it's sort of just you 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 follow the, the news through osmosis, really, um, whether it's the right sort of news or in the right sort of depth. Um, you do sort of absorb a lot of stuff, um, you know, I'm. It's 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 a prisoner's dilemma, you know. No one wants to get off Twitter first. Um, 
because you vacate the field. And it's like sometimes I feel that like, you know, if if I didn't say this one thing, then it's just like, you know, well, my feed's probably curated very differently to to many other people. But like what I see just does not reflect a lot of the times accuracy, you know, or 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 the full gamut of information. Um I think it can be very one-sided and it and it's sort of and you know, I'm gonna sound like a, a, a an insane person right now but it's just like you think about what happened with like the Wuhan lab or something like that and just how it was immediately derided by the entire sort of media ecosystem particularly on Twitter um because it was it was viewed as I don't know racist or or global warming was a better solution or a better explainer because of humans interacting with animal ecosystems but it's just like we know now that neither origin is fully backed by any evidence you know both are equally as sort of probable or plausible as as one another and the the u.s sort of intelligence report issued by biden sort of went to that and it's just like why was the media so quick to judge and corral around this narrative and i can't help but think that twitter in the sort of the the way that it homogenizes these views is part of that yeah, uh, uh, and of course that, that that caused a lot of mainstream media to have to walk back a lot of their original um, criticism of the uh, of the lab theory. Kishore, I want to take you a little to um, the Lee Sales piece that was run about two weeks ago now, uh, and she was pretty direct with how she saw the problem playing out recently on Twitter in relation to COVID. Um, she wrote, you know, in the Australian corner of Twitter, the space is dominated by views that are militantly pro-lockdown, pro-COVID zero, pro-Labor premiers, and even the tamest of questions in those directions prompts an onslaught. I have to say that I, I, when I read that, I thought that's it precisely the way I've read it recently. But to underline that point, you know, Lisa Miller has been trending on Twitter all of yesterday. She's still trending today for asking some pretty benign questions about Queensland's COVID case on on, uh, the program that she co-presents, ABC News Breakfast. And I think all she said was Queensland is in a state of panic after one COVID case was reported, which is kind of insane to attack her for that. Um, Do you relate to, um, you know, to to that kind of uh, idea that um, much of what we're seeing is simply driven by party alliances? And has COVID hardened those kind of parameters? Yeah, I I think there was a lot of um, sense to what Lee Sales was talking about in that piece. It's a particular phenomenon. And I think, I mean, I have a theory that this all really sort of goes back around the time of the 2019 election where you had a, a sort of, I think an extremely online kind of um, progressive Labor voter um, who I think was very shocked by them losing the unlosable election. Mm. And perhaps instead of reflecting on the weaknesses of the Labor campaign or, or you know, one of the million reasons they might have lost that election, sort of turned and, and it, it hardened to this narrative that Labor lost because the media were against them. There are some news outlets that have historic negative view of um the Labor Party, but you know this idea that this is a whole grand media narrative that that screwed over Labor, um, and that, you know, ABC presenters were in on it too because they, um, you know, wanted to support the LNP because they didn't want to get their funding cut, whatever, whatever. All of this hardened, I think, into this narrative of um, 
everyone's sort of against the left in the media. Um, and I think a lot of those people also sort of rallied around Dan Andrews as a kind of progressive figurehead at the same time. Now, I think this is important to note as a phenomenon that we're seeing on Twitter, but importantly, going back to what Michael was saying about, you know, not everyone being on Twitter, most progressives aren't like this. They aren't deeply, deeply brain poisoned to the extent that they will look at a fairly benign interview on News Breakfast and see it as evidence as some kind of um, right-wing conspiracy infecting the ABC. Uh, most people don't buy into this shit, right? They're offline. They, you know, might have opinions on politics, but they don't see it in this way. So I think this is a hyper-niche sort of corner of Twitter. And I think it's very much true that they that there is a sort of, um, you know, particular view around things like lockdowns among sort of around how various states have handled the pandemic um, as well. Uh, I was really struck by this sort of, I think last week there was polling in one of the, I think it was in the SMH or something showing that there was widespread support for, you know, reopening parts of New South Wales when 70% vaccination targets had been hit. Now, a lot in corners of progressive Twitter, that is seen as like a kind of, you know, devastatingly evil thing that will kill thousands of people. Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously there are like very legitimate debates about when the safe place, to, what point we can safely open up the country about hospital capacity. All those are quite legitimate debates, but the kind of progressive group think on Twitter was quite different from the progressive group think among say my offline progressive friends. So yeah. There is certainly this phenomenon. I think we'd be very clear-eyed. We should be clear-eyed about how marginal in the grand scheme of the entire electorate population it is, but it certainly exists and it certainly does tend to dominate the conversation and it's probably why someone like Lisa Miller wanted to take a break. Mm. Michael, what do you think? Do you think a lot of this stuff on Twitter now is aligned to, to party alliances? Well, no, it, it's the great irony of, of everything. It's just like, you know, all these journalists are on Twitter um, you know, it used to be, you know, pretty engaged people or whatever, and there's this rump of, you know, sort of, um, you know, an insane amount of crazy people. And it's just like left, right, whatever. It's like the majority of, of Australia is just like, you know, tuned out, don't care, you know, neither left nor right, or they don't see themselves as that way, um, you know, going about their business, not engaging in this stuff. And and the crazy thing that I, like the, the most repulsive thing about the way that, Twitter sort of um, uh, infects the, the 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 conversation in the in the media is is that it, it's so irrelevant to our business because you know if you look at the stats on on where readers are coming through to our stories and, and this is you know um, this is any sort of traditional masthead big website or even the Guardian which is just online it is tiny it's 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 not even if, it, if all the traffic that came through to those websites via Twitter was ended tomorrow, it would be 1%, 2%, maybe, 3 if you're lucky. Sometimes a story blows up on Twitter and you get a lot of traffic through that thing. But it's generally like one of those sort of like salacious, controversial stories, you know, that, that uh, you know, hits a number of these sort of like, um, you know, um, sweet spots um and it, tend, it tends to pass quite quickly right it, it tends to pass um most people that engage with the news do so via the home page um on a website or the newspaper you know or less and less the newspaper but 
that most people don't come through Twitter. It's it's people aren't reading it there. Um, they're seeing a headline perhaps, but the the population is so small, you know. Mm. Um, and so it's just we need to stop worrying about what people are saying on the on that website, you know. And and how often it, it trickles in from like something happening on Twitter, you know, causing a scandal and then becoming a print story. I mean, like people who aren't on Twitter just must view this you know with utter you know sort of amusement because it's like oh someone was cancelled for wearing face paint in the sydney film festival and it blew up on twitter it's like how is that relevant to their lives you know it's like it's so it 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 it, it documents in it like this unreal sort of like um online sort of uh, extremism and then it's in the newspaper and it's just like this has no relevance to people's lives you know no but but speaking of people's lives michael do you think that journalists also have um a kind of responsibility on social media platforms and, and twitter in particular where there's a kind of more direct interaction with the public um to to be aware of the anxieties that people might be going through particularly now in these really harsh long lockdowns we're not particularly good at you know we're very self-absorbed and as Keisha pointed out we're thin-skinned and um we tend to think a lot of ourselves and our opinions do you think that we have a responsibility as journalists to be very aware that people are anxious at the moment um and and be mindful of that and not feed into that anxiety with the kind of free, the free banter and the you know shooting the breeze. Yeah, well, this is the thing though. It's like the 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 problem sort of originates from uh, something that isn't journalists shooting the shit on Twitter. It, it's like we have been soaked in COVID news for the last eighteen months, like absolutely drenched. Um, it's unreal, and I don't think that any other nation in the world would have had as much saturation as coverage as we had here. And you've got to think that the fact that it wasn't sort of buzzing around the community has just increased the the sort of like the level of anxiety about this unknown sort of virus floating around. Whereas you speak to, like I speak to my friends in, you know, North America and Europe, it's just like everyone's sort of just going about their, their lives normally, you know, COVID's there but it's not dominating every minute of every day as it is here. And it's like people still, it's still a, it's still a boogeyman that's unknown, even, even with the current outbreak, you know, it's like, you're still hard. Most, sorry, most Australians would be hard pressed to know someone who's had it still, um, you know, cause it is such a tiny fraction of the population that's contracted it. And then an even smaller one who's become violently ill or hospitalized or, you know, God forbid dead. So it, it's, it's a problem that I think the media has exacerbated because there's been nothing else going on. And we've sort of interrogated every single line like of anything, like the press conference is being trawled over. Any data point has just been like, like insanely sort of um, picked apart. But, but, but media is to blame for that, is it not, Keisha? I mean, we're the ones, the media is the one who's obsessing about the, 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 the issue and the numbers uh, and the future and what it looks like? Well, I mean, it's probably a bit of an Ouroboros of sorts, right? Like the media keeps pushing out these stories in part because I suppose there's a belief that that's what people are interested in reading about. 
uh, um, and that kind of thing. But in terms of, I think, dealing with the broader anxiety, uh, I think a lot of that anxiety doesn't necessarily come through, you know, what people are doing on sa- and saying online. And when it comes to journalism exacerbating that, I think we probably have to think carefully about how we frame COVID stories and what kind of, you know, headlines we run and that kind of thing. Like, you know, I just don't see how stories which are consistently maybe, you know, pushing the goalposts and warning about future hypothetical things that could happen even when we're very well vaccinated or, or, you know, warning us about the possibility of more, more variants or more lockdowns into next year. I don't see how that helps with people's anxiety. Frankly, I think that that does terrible things to the broad collective mental health of the community. Um, so yet, yet they're valid stories. I, I, I agree. I think they are valid. I, I think that, that, you know, there has to also perhaps be a sort of understanding of where the media does come in to, to sort of exacerbating people's anxieties and those, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I don't think there is necessarily an easy answer when people are so obsessed with COVID news and, you know, are so plugged in. I mean, you have got this situation where normal people are watching 11 o'clock press conferences every day for some reason. Mm. Um, and, and so, I mean, yeah, sure, maybe we are a little bit to blame for that, but it, it's, it's something I don't know how we necessarily extricate ourselves from. No, it seems like a very kind of circular problem that yeah. we've created. I, I can say that on the weekend I tweeted a story from the Financial Times written by an Australian journalist who talked about the normalisation of COVID in uh, in Great Britain. Mm. Um, and I got trolled for uh, three, four days to the point where I just I had to just kind of walk away from it. And it just seemed to me that, it, 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 that we are perhaps in a situation now where people um, don't want, in Australia, that people are not interested in COVID being normalised in, in journalists talking about that, that they do want those... Um, you know, that constant drip of coverage that catastrophizes. Do either of you think that, that but, we have participated that, that? That's sort of like the, the issue with the politicisation of everything because, you know, I, I think that, like, I think well, I, I'll say the, the media, but, you know, it's probably it's not the media as a whole, but there, there's, a, there's a real problem in, it, in our national discourse where, you know, you have to take sides on something or if you do have an opinion it represents something so it's like if you're pro lockdown pro you know like elimination it's like it's a left-wing progressive you know like hard left sort of thing whereas if you're like you know um open up you know let business do it at once you know so you're right wing you're you're like you're you're an evil alt-right person and it's just like it's not the case it's like it there there are positions that you can hold that don't have anything to do with your political persuasion or even, you know, looking at anything on a left-right sort of scale. Um, but it's just, it, it, it was just adopted. And I think that it, it sort of really damaged everything because you look at the way that, like, people view, you know, what happens in Victoria versus what happens in New South Wales. And it, there was this really partisan debate on it. And it's just like, wait a minute, it's, it's like a global pandemic. The government can only do so much. And ideologically, it can only it can do even less, you know. And it's like it it governments can only do so much to to sort of mitigate this thing, and most of it comes down to luck. And that was the problem with like the media sort of blaming Dan Andrews for this for the first outbreak last year. It's just like, well, you know, 
there are probably were some problems in hotel quarantine, but like at the end of the day, it's a it's a it's a virus, you know. It's like it's it's tiny, it's microscopic. The government can't control nature as much as we we would like to think it does, and it has nothing to do with ideology. And so it's like this this whole outbreak we're in now. It's just like again, it's just luck. Like who could have seen that? And it's just like we've invested way too much belief in the power of the government to do one thing one way or the other in this. And I think that, like, the, the deluge of information that we've been given, we could have just kept it at high level, you know. It's like, you know, keep your distance, be sensible, you know, use your common sense, get vaccinated, for the love of God, get vaccinated as soon as it's there with whatever they're giving you. And, you know, we would have been in a remarkably similar position that we are in now. Mm, okay. Look, I'm going to move you both on at this point to the issue of Facebook, that other uh, platform that we love to hate. Um, th- this month, the media lost an appeal to the High Court over the Dylan Voller defamation case involving a comment made by, made on a media Facebook page by a member of the public. Now, in short, the media company and not the poster nor Facebook are now responsible As a result, we've seen CNN um, announce that they're locking their pages from being viewed in Australia. That has, you know, that decision, um, both by the High Court and by CNN, has, uh, it does pose particular problems, I think, for the Australian media. Can I ask you both, what are you hearing? What are your thoughts? Do you think that, you know, crikey, AFR might actually be looking at this internally and panicking slightly? Keyshaw? Oh, um, well, I wouldn't say we're panicking. <laughs> we're looking not. at it, certainly. Uh, well, yeah, of course. We're looking at it with, with um, keen eyes, much in the way that we looked at it when Facebook kicked Australian publications um, offline a few months ago. Um, we've all seemed to have forgotten that. Um, look, in, in terms of this decision, I would say the reasoning that the courts took was obviously that companies were trying to obtain commercial benefit by putting stories on Facebook and therefore they bear some legal consequences. And that, look, given the state of defamation law in this country, it was probably legally speaking, applying the law as it is, um, the correct decision. Um, I do think maybe courts need to have a little think about the sort of broader ramifications of a decision like that but um you know i would be it would be a miss so, so let's look at those broader ramifications to, to, to criticize the high court is what i was going to say um sure. so but but i mean well in terms of the broader ramifications i mean many media outlets simply don't have the resources to police those social media platforms do they not at least not around the clock no. and for those lucky enough to have been to have those resources do they want to spend them that way but also, is there a possibility that you kind of get a two-class system of media here where smaller players lock everything down while larger players get to rule the social media roost? Yeah, I think the first thing to unpack is to try to work out just how important and valid we think Facebook comments on stories really are. Um, I mean, I think often, more often than not, in fact, they're a bit of a cesspit, um, just like just as we were saying about Twitter um, and the discussion of them is not particularly productive. Obviously, you know, Facebook does boost traffic and there are a lot of normal people, unlike Twitter, are actually on Facebook and do actually get their news through Facebook. Um, I think one of the biggest problems that, that I thought would arise when all news was going to be ripped off Facebook in the first place was this concept of the sort of 
you know, low information news consumer. So not the kind of person that's watching press conferences or, you know, scrolling through the homepage or getting the paper delivered every day, but the mm. kind of person who maybe stumbles across an article because a friend has shared it on Facebook or, you know, they've seen a link that's just bounced into their feed somehow through whatever wizardry of the algorithm and, and how that person stays engaged with the news, whether that person loses more engagement because there aren't Facebook comments where they're seeing friends getting tagged or where someone could tag them in something, whether that person sort of misses out on consuming the news. That said, I think that media companies, yeah, obviously this is a challenge. I think that there is a chance to turn this challenge into some kind of opportunity and actually think really long and hard about what our relationship with social platforms are, what our relationships with Facebook are, but also how we can use this to maybe move away from Facebook and diversify the kinds of places that we're sharing content on. Like, you know, I think younger readers aren't on Facebook. Like no yeah. one at the age of 30 uses that. Yeah. Um, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok, whatever. Um, and frankly, I don't think most Australian news outlets do a particularly great job at really sharing their stories through those outlets. Um, I think there are overseas publications that are sort of a little bit more ahead of the curve on that. Can I ask you, Kishore, though, moving social media platforms, is that the answer? Because the same the same ruling would presumably apply. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in terms of stuff like comments, I think that's, that's less of a sort of issue on Instagram. Obviously, you have Instagram posts, but you have things like stories and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it wouldn't apply as much to, say, an Instagram story, um, which is probably a really good, probably a more effective and engaging way to sort of get readers on site and probably the way people are really relating with a lot of news content on Instagram. So I think it does, obviously, yeah, there are challenges if you move platforms. But I think it does sort of raise the question of moving platforms and thinking about that with a bit more depth and creativity. The, the, you know, look, the situation with the media in a world where how people sort of get media is refracted through these weird, these, 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 these tech platforms, it's always going to be a difficult one. And it's one that forces media outlets to think creatively. And I think we just have to continue to do that. Michael, one of the aspects of this is potentially reducing freedom of speech. If, if we lock down comments, um, aren't we simply saying to people, you know, we really don't care what you think, what you have to say? Should we be worried about that? Yeah, I like, you know, I love freedom of speech, but I'm not sure whether the Facebook comment speech is the one that I'm going to die on the hill to defend. Um, the Like Kishore said, the what we actually get out of Facebook comments isn't a lot. It's just, it's sort of people just arguing with each other. Um, the, the the issue, as I understand it, and, you know, I'm, I'm not fully across this, but as I understand it, it, it's it's if the publisher posts a story to their own page and the comments are found to be defamatory by a court, the, the publisher is liable, as in the news publisher. But if, if you know, um, Uncle Lou posts the story you know the sky news video on on his personal facebook page and his relatives and mates comment on it um and those are defamatory sky news is not the at fault in that situation so mm. I, I don't think that it's going to be a freedom of speech issue at all and i think you know like i i'm i'm <laughs> philosophically opposed to to social media and you know as it is I, I don't think it'll be um uh, bad for for news organizations to hit 
the end of comments um and just to move forward like at the at the financial review on our on our website you know we don't we don't have a place where people can comment at all yeah. um and, and we're, we're a different news site because it's, you know, premium publication for very engaged people and, you know, decision makers. We obviously have a letters to the editor page uh, where people can engage with the media there. But we haven't lost any sort of opportunity, I don't think, through, through not having comments. Um, when I used to work at The Australian, the comments were, you know, a continual headache for the business, I think that would be fair to say, because obviously you'd have to police them a lot. And there was this whole sort of, um, you know, net op- operation. I, it wasn't, I, I don't even think it was local that, that sort of moderated the comments because obviously we were publishing them to the website. Um, and, you know, if you had a legally sensitive story, you, you would turn them off, um, you know, but it, 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 I think it just opens more problems than it solves a lot of the time. If, if we really, wanted the one thing they're good for is for for people to give you information to enhance the story that can be done via email which is probably where these conversations should be taking place anyway or or over the phone the the issue is that you know we've created this online replica of of the the saturday barbecue and it's just like we we don't the news media isn't there to facilitate you know, offline conversations um, or, or conversations that should be having offline. I, I, I don't think that's our role. Um, so you're saying, you're, saying turn, you're saying then turn the comments off and, and, and live with it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't personally see a problem with that. Kishore, do you, do you agree with Michael? Just turn them off and, and, and live with it? I always breathe a sigh of relief when the comments are turned off on one of my pieces, I've got to say. <laughs> you know, yeah, look, every publication that has comments has um, the challenges of having to moderate them. It's probably harder for a smaller publication to moderate all those comments, but unfortunately our readers seem to really love them. So, Okay. Well, look, I think we will leave the discussion there. I thank you both very, very much for taking part in today's program. It was a fabulous, fabulous discussion. Um, and uh, let's see what happens on Twitter and Facebook. But thank you both. Thanks, Monica. Cheers. On that note, I'd like to thank Kishore Napier-Raman and Michael Roden for being on Fourth Estate. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks to our producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.